What's good, everyone? Before we start the episode, I want to share with you a unique financial strategy that Savvy Docs are using to purchase real estate. Now, even if you are starting with single family homes, or you might even be in the big leagues trying to get 20, 50, or even 100 unit complexes, this strategy might be for you. Other benefits are it can help you grow your wealth tax free, and it also protects you from the bad guys. I'm talking about the creditors and the lawsuits. Now, I took the time to learn about how this strategy works, and I think it can help you optimize your investing also. I want you to check out moneyinsights.net forward slash Darko and click on the investment optimizer link to learn more. What's good, everyone? This is Dr. Nee. Thank you for tuning in. Now, listen, I know you saw the title and you're like, oh, man, this is just clickbait. This can't be real. But people are doing this on a daily basis. They are using their business to purchase a car for themselves. You could decide what type of car you want it to be, but I just happened to put a Tesla because that's what our guests, Dr. Kenji and Dr. Letty, are doing with their business, right? Now, that's not the end goal is to be able to have your business pay for your car, but it's really important to know that you can do that. And they're going to be coming on the show and we're going to be talking about some of the tax loopholes, some of the other benefits that you can have with using real estate as a means of income for yourself. Now, before we go and move forward, I want to just put out the disclaimer that any action that you take based off of this show, make sure you clear it with your tax professional first. We are not tax professionals, so make sure you clear it with your tax professional first. I do not want the IRS coming after me, so make sure you talk to your peoples first, all right? Now, Dr. Kenji and Dr. Letty, they are coming on the show to talk about real estate professional status, which you've heard a little bit about in the past, but we're going to talk about it in a very clear, succinct way. We're going to talk about why you should consider opening up an LLC for your business. We're going to be talking about the pride and ownership. We're going to be talking about a lot of different things. And if you've been following this Darko Real Estate series for some time, you know that we've been starting off, me and Renee have been starting off with zero knowledge, sometimes even negative knowledge. And we are right now trying to solidify closing on a six-unit property. And we're doing that using the Zero to Freedom course that Dr. Kenji and Dr. Letty created. And we're using that because we feel like this course is like that. This course is the bomb. It really helped us get over some of the fears that we had and helped us get off the fence. And now, you, as you can see, we're purchasing a pretty big multifamily property. Now, if you're interested in doing something like this, I definitely recommend this. This program is a major go. If you go into the show notes, you'll see a link in the show notes for you to click on and you can get onto the waiting list for when their course starts, which should start in the early winter. All right. Now, when you're jumping onto this waiting list, there's going to be some bonuses for you, actually. There's going to be some live Q&As where you can get with them face-to-face, ask them about their portfolio, ask them about some of their questions with real estate, as well as with the course. There's going to be a pop-up Facebook group that you can jump in and connect with other physicians and high-income professionals. There's also going to be a $300 discount for people who are on the wait list also, and that's what that's all about. So listen, make sure you click on the show notes. There's a link there where you can sign up to be on the wait list for the Zero to Freedom 2021 course. And like I said, this course is the bomb. Now listen, without further ado, I want you to listen to this episode. Make sure you figure out how to get your business to pay for your Tesla. Let's get it. Hey guys, this is Dr. Neve. We got 
Hector Renee. And we are joined by the gurus of real estate within the physician world, Dr. Gletti, Dr. Kenji. Yep. What's good, everybody? Welcome. How y'all doing? Awesome. We're so happy to be here with you guys. So I'm going to let you guys get your little humble brag, your humble flex in. Where are you guys recording from right now? (laughs) Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah, we're quarantining with my parents and celebrating our daughter's fifth birthday. So that's sweet. That's really awesome. And I'm a little jealous at the same time. (laughs) That's why I said it's a little humble flex. So congratulations (laughs) on that. Awesome. Awesome. So look, we are in the midst of purchasing our own property and you know, we wanted to get you on the show because we feel like y'all have been our mentors and we've taken your course. We've talked to you all, you know, offline also about the things that, you know, we should be doing in terms of getting our property. Your course has been really instrumental in helping us, you know, mm-hmm. decide to go and get yeah. a six unit property. When we first started, we thought we'd get like a single family home or a maybe duplex, like a duplex. Yeah. And then, you know, we just found this really great opportunity. We ran the numbers, we followed your exact plan and we just said, well, why not try to do the six family and see what happens, right? Yeah, yeah. So we are, you know, we're pretty close. So we wanted to get you on to talk to y'all about, you know, some of the things that I think from the outside looking in, people may have questions about, you know, kind of help us out as we are getting really close to closing on this property. So let's do it. Yeah. All right. So listen, let's talk about reps because I think a lot of time the rep status, which is an acronym for something, that a lot of people, a lot of doctors are listening. And then as soon as you talk about the description of reps or whatever it is, their <laughs> eyes just all of a sudden, like they go through the roof and they're just like, yo, what? This is too true, like too good to, to be, be true. true. Yeah, like they don't believe it. Right. So let's talk about reps real quick, the reps status. Can you describe that for us? Take us through it, break it down so that it'll forever be broke, please. Sure, yeah. So, well, first of all, just a just disclaimer, you know, we're not lawyers or accountants. So mm-hmm. definitely speak to your professional about this. But you know, we've spoken to a lot of CPAs and lawyers about this topic. And so, you know, we've educated ourselves about it. So REPS stands for real estate professional status. And you know, the real key with real estate professional status is it allows you to take your rental losses in shelter income. And so W-2 or 1099 income. So in our situation, Leite is the, you know, the physician, the clinician in the family. I became the reps. And so we took our real estate rental losses and sheltered all of her income, right? So we would make cash flow from our rental properties and simultaneously we would shelter all of her income. And so that combination is extremely powerful. Now, I did want to point out that it's important to understand that with real estate and rental properties, you can actually cash flow, make money, put money in your pocket, put money in the bank. And at the same time, you can show a massive loss. And that's kind of the key with this. And going back in history, it's really interesting when you look at the history of reps, you know, in our parents' generation, anybody, and a lot of physicians took advantage of this, anybody could buy rental properties and show a loss and shelter their income. Uh And so, I mean, there were tons of people doing this in in our parents' generation. Then they took it away completely. And for a several year period, that benefit was completely gone. And then they brought it back, but with the caveat, they attached this rules for what you needed to qualify for in order to achieve this status called reps. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that, you know, like Nee said, when people hear about rep status, when they hear potentially what you can do with it, they actually, you know, it's too good to be true, right? Like they just don't believe it. And so 
I'm glad we're talking about this today because you kind of mentioned something that I wanted you to kind of expound upon. You talked about sheltering and taking massive losses and understanding that our audience would like to potentially take advantage of reps. Can you tell us like, you know, for someone who doesn't understand exactly what that means, right? The taking the massive losses, what does that mean? What does sheltering mean? You know, just so that we kind of talk about in enough layman's terms that our audience is really understanding what this is about. Yeah. I want to just shift back a tiny bit before I talk about that. Mm -hmm. So the thing about reps is there are criteria that you have to meet. And I think a lot of people, when they hear about reps, they're like, oh, I just need to buy a rental. I'm set. But actually, the government has set it up so it's much more difficult than that. You really need to do a minimum of 750 hours a year and real estate needs to be your primary profession. Mm -hmm. So for example, you heard Kenji cut back in medicine to the point that he was spending more time on real estate than he was in medicine. And so that was a big deal for us, right? That meant cutting you know, his income in half as a physician. But for us, the tax benefits were worth it. But that was a decision we actually made. Mm-hmm. And so the second part, that 750 hours, if Kenji were working 1,000 hours in medicine, he would have to work 1,001 in real estate. And so it becomes... If you're working, you know, a fair amount of physician hours and then you own a number of properties and you're saying you're working a lot more hours than that, you know, at a certain point, the IRS is going to say, are you really working 5,000 hours a year? Like that doesn't sound real. So you want to make sure that, you know, what you're actually doing is going to, you know, go through an audit. And so we track our time we track, you know, what Kenji is doing in our real estate portfolio. And make sure we get to that minimum 750 hours and we go far over it because Kenji is so active in right. our portfolio. What are y'all using to track your time? We use Google Calendar, actually. We, okay. Kenji will even, you know, when he meets with somebody, he'll put it in. He'll put like a description of what he talked about mm-hmm. and then any sort of supporting documents even. And then we have an email that's only for real estate that he does all his communication in. When you're documenting, are we talking about like, I spent an hour talking to this person or an hour doing X, Y, and Z. That's how granular you're getting with it? Or is it just a block of time and you just put it out there? How granular are you getting? We're very granular. Just in case we ever get audited, we want to make Yeah, Yeah, just to give you an example. So if I spend an hour with somebody or talking on the phone or doing a, a particular task, right? I'll actually put in the notes section of the Google Calendar exactly what I did. And or I might reference an email, you know, drafted an email or sent an email to this person and I'll say refer to email sent on this date, right? So I'll be pretty granular, pretty detailed about what I'm doing so that if anybody ever comes and looks under the hood, you know, they're going to be like, okay, it's all there. Right. And so that's right. kind of what, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, we're buttoned up when it comes to things like an audit or something like that. Yeah. And we even do like a thinking time meeting every week about our real estate portfolio that we both participate in. And mm-hmm. go through all the things that are going on in the real estate portfolio, make decisions about what we're going to do, you know, think actively about other ways we can decrease expenses or increase income. And so that in itself is like actually, you know, both of us working on the portfolio accounts for real estate professional hours. So that 750 hours is generally real estate, but 500 of those has to be material participation on, spent on your own properties. So when we sit down and we do a two hour meeting, that's four hours of material participation between us. And as long as one person is going over that 750 hours and spending more than 50% of their time in real estate, you know, even my hours count towards material participation hours. He has to make them up in other activities in real estate. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, and before we get even further, like this whole reps thing, 
Is this like a check thing that you check on your income tax? Like, how does that relate to what actually gets filed to the government? Yeah. So you have to make what's called an election. So you literally have a separate page in your tax return that says taxpayer, you know, hereby, you know, states that they qualify for real estate professional status, right? And it's actually interesting. It's not accountant says you qualify. It says taxpayer says that they qualify, right? right. So you're certifying, you're saying, right. I'm electing this. I'm telling you that I qualify for it, right? And so that's a really important, yeah, and you make that election. And then that, what that happens is that everything in your tax return related to your rental property, those losses then can be used to offset income or shelter income. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to point out, this is a really important reason why you need a real estate savvy CPA. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Kenji's job, our tax returns is real estate professional. He's filling out that form. And then there's another form that we actually put in with our taxes that aggregates all of our properties to count the time for all of them to be together. There are a number of rules for real estate professional. And one of them that sometimes people will do is 100 hours per property of material yeah. participation. But we aggregate all of our properties together. And then we only have to do 500 hours total of material participation for the year. All right. So let's go through this material participation then. So let's say, for example, you don't have any properties whatsoever but you're going towards purchasing a property. So for example, like what we're doing, can any of those hours count for towards reps? We haven't closed on it yet, but like the driving to there, the inspection, all that stuff, does that count? Yeah. And so, you know, definitely want to check with your accountant on all these things, but yeah, those, those <laughs> and things. And that's because CPAs treat these things yes. totally differently. Yeah. Your CPA yeah. will tell you different information than somebody else's CPA. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I wanted to unpack the 750 hours a little bit because it does get really confusing, right? So 750 hours is the minimum that's required for real estate professional status. But when you look at the requirement, it says hours in which you materially participate in your properties, right? Mm -hmm. So that's within the 750-hour definition. So then the question becomes, what's material participation? What does it mean when I'm materially participating? And that part actually is a little bit vague, but what we can say is that you're involved in the operations of your property. You're involved in the generation of income and paying those expenses and and running the business around the rental property. It's not some real estate activity like you're a real estate agent and working on somebody else's properties. You're working on your own properties. And that's really the core of material participation. That could be also renovations, right? That could also be mm-hmm. buying and selling, right? So you were talking about driving and looking at your property to see if you're going to buy it, you know, going, attending the inspection, right. those types of things, right? Everything involved in the operations of your property. Now, material participation has seven tests and all you have to do is meet one of those seven. Okay. Late T was mentioning 500 hours. That's one of the seven tests, but there are other tests in which you can, you know, if you mature, you know, you can meet that criteria by meeting one of those other seven tests. And so in your case, since you have one property, you don't actually have to aggregate. Aggregate is helpful when you have lots of different properties. Uh-huh. When you have just one property, you could meet the one test where you spend 100 hours and you're also the person that spends the most time on your property more than anybody else managing that property. And so if you meet that one test, 100 hours, then you could actually take the losses from that property and use that to shelter income because you will have materially participated in that one property. Yeah. So I know we're going to talk about, you know, do you manage yourself or not? Like these are actually the decisions that will help you decide if you want to manage or or not. That's good to know. Yeah. Because definitely we're going to get into that a little bit later on. So 
what it's sounding like is that there are a number of ways basically to be able to meet the criteria for rep status. And so just because you don't meet one specific criteria doesn't necessarily mean that you're just, you know, except for the, I guess the 750 hours, you know, but it sounds like there are a number of ways to be able to meet that criteria. Yeah, there's really just two ways though, that there's two criteria for real estate professional status Mm -hmm. and the variation comes within those. So you still have to meet the two criteria, 750 hours, minimum of 750 Mm -hmm. hours Mm -hmm. in real estate being your primary profession. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But within these two, there's that material participation, which you also need, but there's some variation within that. Right. That's where the variation yeah. is. Yeah. And I think yeah. another thing is to make sure that people realize that only one person in the family has to meet this criteria mm-hmm. in a couple. So if you're married, you know, Kenji only is the person that actually has to meet that criteria. Mm-hmm. I don't have to at all. She can, and, yeah, Lady can, can continue still, to work full time as a clinician if she wants right, to. Right. And so we can still use those losses to shelter my income. Now, I know your question was about losses and how you create losses. So there are really a couple primary ways that we create losses. Number one is bonus depreciation. Like that one's the biggest. And what that is, is actually with the CARES Act back in 2017, Trump passed something called 100% bonus depreciation. And what that means is the first year you can take the first 15 years worth of losses, of depreciation losses that year. So Mm. depreciation means every year... Are you serious? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, just to clarify, that was actually with the 2017 Trump tax law, not CARES Act. CARES Act brought in something called net operating loss carryback which we can talk about. Yeah, we should talk about it. So in the government's eyes, your property loses value every year and that's called Mm -hmm. depreciation. And so for like a fourplex, for example, over 27 years, the property, the building will go to a value of zero in the government's eyes, even though it may be gaining value. So what this looks like for us is with 100% bonus depreciation, we actually take the first 15 years of depreciation year one And so, for example, we just bought a $3 million apartment building. Mm -hmm. And so what we were able to do is- Congratulations. Another humble flex. I like that. I like that. I like that. That was 1031 exchanges. Three little properties went into that. And that's exactly how you grow over time, right? Yeah. You have these little properties, you force appreciation, they become worth more, you roll them into the next thing. And that's what we've been doing. And so that $3 million property gives us $770,000 in bonus depreciation year one. That's a $770,000 tax shelter. So that's $770,000 we don't have to pay taxes on now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you do, just to kind of break it down really clearly, when you do your income, your rental income minus your expenses, one of the line items in expenses is depreciation. And you can put that $770,000 next to that line item. And therefore, all of a sudden, your expenses go up by $770,000. So when you compare the rental income minus all your expenses plus the seven hundred seventy thousand, yeah. you're showing essentially a seven hundred seventy thousand dollar loss. Right, and then that's where the conversation of sheltering Dr. Letty's income comes in. Right, gotcha. correct, right. correct. Yeah, and then the CARES Act, like let's take that seven hundred seventy thousand dollar example. Let's say as a hospital, let's say she's making three hundred thousand dollars, right? And so that seven hundred seventy thousand exceeds the three hundred thousand dollars. So we shelter all three hundred thousand, but we still have. $470,000 left. Mm-hmm. With the CARES Act, there's something called a net operating loss carryback, which allows you to go back in time and shelter income from five years ago, mm. and then four years ago, and three years ago, until it's all used up. So you can actually shelter income for five consecutive years going back. Yeah. So we have students who are going out and buying a ton of property this year, have real estate professional, 
then they're sheltering all their you know income this year, and then they're going back to 2015, sheltering that, 2016, and they're just going to get a huge chunk of money back from taxes that they paid five years ago. Now they can reinvest it and grow their portfolio even faster. Oh, wow. Dr. Nee is smiling. <laughs> How many more weeks to the election? <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. So, <laughs> my question to you, though, is, Dr. Kenji, my question is, is, what was that conversation like when you and Dr. Letty came and said, okay, someone is going to have to pull back. It'll be me. Uh-huh. What was that conversation like? Like, was it difficult? Was it easy? Was it a mathematical thing that you had in front of you? Take us through that conversation where it just said, okay, you're going part-time to make this rep status. Was there any pushback? I want to be a fly in the window. Tell us about this. Well, Leite may have a different recollection, so I'll talk about my perspective here. So we had just come back from a trip from New Zealand. We decided we're going to be real estate investors. And so... You notice that this whole conversation is full of humble brags? (laughs) (laughs) I love it though. I love it. I love it. Keep going. Keep going. I love it. That's how it's supposed to be. Uh, yeah, so we decided we had a very clear why, we had a very clear goal, and you know we knew that there was the status that we could achieve, and so yeah, it was fairly easy to you know because I'm older, so I've been working clinically longer. And Leti actually said she wanted to continue working clinically, and so I think it was just a natural thing for me to cut back. So it really wasn't a, I didn't think there was any friction. It was no, pretty natural. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I had been through divorce before. And when I left that marriage, I said, well, you know, part of the reason I could leave was I really felt secure in my ability to make money in my job. And so I was still under the really strong feeling of, you know, I never want to be in a situation that I can't make my own money. And so I didn't want to cut back at all. Mm-hmm. I wanted to continue. So it was very clear because... And I wanted to cut back. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And, and you Perfect. know, it yeah. also suited our personalities really well. Like he mm-hmm. loves paying the bills and dealing with the contractor and doing that kind of stuff. I don't. I like okay. looking for properties. I like thinking about the money and looking at the money come in. Like, that's what I like. I don't want to do the detailed work and I don't want to deal with Excel spreadsheets. I don't want to do any of that. Right. I just want to show up with the big ideas. Awesome. You know, the reason I asked that question is I think that, what's the best way I can say this? I think sometimes we let our mind get in our way of actual progress, Mm -hmm. right? And, oh, well, you know, I spent my entire life trying to be a physician. Right. Why can't I do both? Meanwhile, you're trying to do both and both are suffering, Mm -hmm. right? You're not spending enough time being a physician or... You're not spending enough time in real estate and deals are getting lost because you're trying to do both in between right. cases. And it's just, I just wanted to find out what it was like. What kind of mental math, emotional stuff did you have to do, you know, to get yourself to pull back? And it seems like it wasn't much at all. Yeah. So. Well, we had such a clear vision of how we wanted to spend our lives. And that vision, you know, I think I've told you that before. It was like, we're going to go to Italy. We're going to have a villa. We're going to have a huge table. Our whole family is going to be hanging out and all our friends are going to be there. And we're going to have the time to spend with them. And when Kenji asked me, you know, how do you want to live your life? I said, I want to learn to be a really good host. Like that was what I wanted to spend my time doing. And because we had that, I mean, it was like any decision we made, it was like, is this getting us closer to that vision or not? And so every decision we made was focused. And this was, you know, part of that focus. It was like, we got to go take this seriously. We got to buy a ton of properties. We're going to get real estate professional. We're growing an empire. And that's how we really visualized it from the very beginning is we're growing an empire. And this is going to be somewhere we're going to be. And actually, our goal back then was to replace both our clinical incomes in seven years. Like that was our goal. I think the other thing is that no matter what you're doing, you know, I think if you can find meaning in what you're doing, then 
I think it becomes easier to do, right? So, you know, obviously as a clinician, you, you know, you have, you know, patient care, right? But then you say, well, as a real estate investor, well, how do you create meaning out of it? Well, for me, it's really like, I really want to create the best living environment for my tenants, right? And that's really important to me, right? So like I focus on things like safety. So I might put in like security cameras, right? Or a fence or cleanliness, right? So we'll pay, you know, extra for cleaners or landscaping, right? Those types of things, right? And so really it's all for me, it's about creating a really good, safe living environment for my tenants. And that to me gives meaning to what we're doing. And so I, I think it's really important to kind of think of it that way because... Otherwise, like you said, it may be hard to shift from something like clinical medicine where you get a lot of meaning to something else where you may not have that same level of meaning or contribution, right? And so that's why I think for me, it's been easier because that's where my head went was I really want to create that really good living environment for our tenants. I think you and I definitely are on the same page with that, Kenji, because that's one of the things that I actually think about a lot, you know, is giving people a great space to come home to, right? A person's home should be their safe haven. It shouldn't be something that they're not looking forward to or something that is dangerous for them to go home to. It should be something that is clean, that is nice, you know, that they're proud to live in. And I think that when people do that, even if they are not owners, that they take some pride in living there, some pride in mentorship, and then they respect the property in which they live. So yeah, I definitely understand that. Yeah, it's not all about profits and right. becoming a slumlord. Exactly. Which Definitely seen, don't want to be a slumlord. I think, I during, think that's just so, so disrespectful to be a slumlord, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't look at it. Well, there are people who don't look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Right? They're disrespectful. Then, <laughs> right. It's true. I mean, that's the truth. You know, and I think during ours, you know, we're continuing to still even look at more properties as mm-hmm. we're getting ready to close in on this one. And, you know, the one that we just recently looked at, it was just like, man, like definitely slumlord going on here. I mean, the yeah. tenants were talking bad about the owner and so forth. Right. I mean, it just seems as though the owner at that point, you know, was just taking advantage of the ability for them not to be mobile, which is extremely sad. Yeah. Right. Hey docs, if you're a real estate investor, or even if you're aspiring to become one, then you know, one of the biggest challenges is finding the best way to save for that initial down payment. And then after that, figuring out where to park money between deals. That's why it's so important to build an opportunity fund. In other words, you need a place to efficiently save money for that perfect investment property. In my experience, most people just end up using a savings or checking account to keep money liquid, but we all know banks ain't given no interest and there's absolutely no tax benefits. So here's the deal. I've recently learned about a solution to this problem. In fact, hundreds of savvy docs right now have already turned to this strategy from the folks at Money Insights. They call it the investment optimizer, and it grows your money tax-free at a compounding rate without volatility. And it protects your money from creditors and lawsuits. Make sure to check out the investment optimizer video at moneyinsights.net forward slash Darko, or you can text the keyword Darko to 31996. Since you guys kind of Gave us the segue. Let's just talk about, you know, being a good landlord and mm-hmm. what all entails. Because you're talking about that possibly putting cameras in depending on the property or, you know, some other things and so forth. So, you know, since that's going to be us pretty soon, like, yeah. what is being a good landlord? And is property management part of that? Or is that two separate things? Talk to us about that. 
Yeah. So, you know, I think that probably one thing that kind of joins us is we're buying properties with a lot of value add, meaning that they're properties that usually it is slumlords who have not been taking care of the property. You know, they haven't fixed it up for their tenants. Their tenants are not paying a whole lot of rent because, you know, the property is in disrepair. So one thing that we do for our tenants is we make sure that we have the nicest building and nicest property on the block. And so what we often do is we'll go in and rehab up front. And so we'll actually, you know, we're not going high end and like buying stainless steel appliances, but we want to just have quality materials and make sure the property is a really nice place to be, like you guys mentioned. And it actually helps us too, because we have lower maintenance. So over time, you know, if we go fix everything up up front, we're not going to have, you know, things breaking down over the next, you know, year, two years. And yeah, like you said, Renee is like, We also have our tenants, I think, have a different level of respect for the property. When we do a good job and provide them with a great place, then they also respect it more. And then it is actually a lot of your rehab can be written off. And so our rehabs, I like to look at it almost like the government pays for a third of our rehab tax-wise most of the time. So that's why we do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I do really, actually, when I think about my rental properties, I'm always thinking about kind of two questions. One is, you know, how do I increase the income and decrease the expenses of my property to increase the cash flow? Because if you can increase the cash flow, then you are going to increase the value of the property, right? And this is, you know, really important for growing your wealth because if you can take a property that's worth, you know, you buy it for, let's say 500,000, you can force the appreciation to 800,000, right? You mean you just built 300,000 in equity in a property in less than 12 months, let's say, right? So that's a huge kind of step up in wealth if you can do that. But that's not the only question. The other question I'm asking myself is, how do I improve the living conditions for my tenants in a cost-effective way, right? And so everything that I... I'm not just like spending money just to make the living conditions better. I'm also thinking about it in the context of, you know, how do I do it in a way that also ben- there are benefits for the building or for me. And so those are the two questions I'm asking. The one other component that I did want to mention that I don't hear a lot of people talking about is that I think the tenants need to also take personal responsibility. So one of the things that I have done, yeah, one of the things I've done in one of my properties is I actually sent a letter saying like, hey, you know, these are the three things that I'm working on. You know, I think it was like security, cleanliness, and, you know, something of responsiveness or something like that, right? Responsiveness in terms of if you request a repair, we're going to be on it, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, these are things we're doing, but I said that we can't do this alone, right? And we had one of our buildings had a cockroach problem. And I said, look, Ultimately, like we can only do what we can do, but a lot of these kind of, you know, problems with cockroaches or rodents, that's a lot of kind of personal responsibility issues, right? You got to keep your place clean, right? You got to put away food. You can't just leave it sitting out. And I said, if we find this, right, if we do a random inspection, we find this, you know, we are going to hire a cleaner and make you pay for it, let's say, right? So we do add those kind of personal responsibility things to it, you know, kind of almost like, hey, we're doing our part, you got to do your part, mm-hmm. right? And so that's kind of one of the things that I just wanted to point out that I don't think it's just all on us. I right. also think that you got to put some of that on the tenants as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now you guys also asked about property management. You know, we have largely chosen to use property managers. A lot of that is because of anonymity. We really didn't mm-hmm. want to um we're very careful about asset protection. And so we really didn't want all of our tenants to know who we were and what we did for our work. A lot of it was also because we realized very early on, we didn't want to deal with the day-to-day calls. We wanted to focus on finding new properties or 
forcing appreciation, like Kenji just mentioned, by increasing you know, the profits of our building, like that's where we wanted to put our time. So we've largely chosen to use property managers. When you say day-to-day calls, you're talking about like toilet overflow, you know, just the normal things that people... lights, yeah, things like that. We didn't want to have to deal with those day-to-day issues. And so I think Kenji manages one of our properties where it's a single family home with a single tenant that he knows really well. And And those are that... Actually, two duplexes as well on top of that as well. Yeah. And those are supported living. So they're for housing for intellectually disabled which is an incredible program. And again, it allows us to feel really good about providing housing for intellectually disabled, but also really works in our favor as landlords because they rent per room and there's no vacancy because if one of the tenants moves out, they continue to pay for the room mm-hmm. and there's no property management costs because Kenji's our property management. And if something breaks down, actually they call their own maintenance person first, the supported living company does. And if it's a tenant cause, then they'll fix it. If it's not tenant caused, then they'll come to Kenji and yeah. he just has you know a local handyman go fix things. And so that supported living program, Kenji has chosen to self-manage, which is mm-hmm. phenomenal. Right. Awesome. Wow. So let me ask, it's you know, kind of along the lines where that knee was asking. So, you know, you've obviously chosen to do mostly property managers for most of your properties. At what point should someone actually consider doing property management, right? Because that's what people ask. Property management obviously costs something. And so it's going to cut into your profits with your property. So at what point do you say, yeah, maybe I should get a property manager? Yeah, I think when you're getting started out, I think it's great to you know self-manage. I think there's so much you can learn from that process. I think that the 2 a.m. you know leaking toilet call is really a myth. I mean, I've never had that issue in any of the properties of self-managed. I've never heard of that as an issue from our property managers. I'm sure they get 2 a.m. calls about something, but you know, again, most things can be handled or tenants will call about most things during business hours mm-hmm. is the reality of it. And so, you know, I think it's good to start out with self-management and also you'll also get much better cash flow if you manage it yourself. Like you said, you know, property management does cost something, but I just think that, yeah, you'll learn so much by just doing your first few properties. Now, the question of when do you transition? You know, I think it's a point at which your time is better spent doing the things that Leite was saying, which is, you know, looking for other properties or forcing appreciation. Like if you get to a point where, you know, you're running up against like, well, first of all, you know, if you're going to be a real estate professional, you still need to put in those hours, right? So you're going to put in those hours. If you don't have enough hours, then self-management is really great, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to add a lot of hours. But let's say that you're so busy sourcing properties or forcing appreciation, managing renovations, doing all this other stuff that you no longer have time for the day-to-day and you're already achieving those 750 hours in other ways, then at that point, then I would probably outsource the property management so you can then focus on those other things that are much, much more valuable. Like I said, forced appreciation, I did the analysis on it. For every $1 of increased income, right? So if you increase the rent by a dollar or decrease expenses by a dollar, you're increasing the value of your property by 15 to 20 dollars, right? So like every dollar of increased income, you're increasing the property value by 15 to $20. So, I mean, that's a significant, I mean, so if you like, you know, if you do it, like I can't do the math in my head, but $3,000 a year and in increased income, right? Then multiply that by 15 to 20 times. And that's going to be the, how much you increase the value of your property. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I think I would take a little different spin on it actually myself. I don't think that, you know, people should necessarily I'll start out with self-management. I mean, the first year, 
we went and we ended up with 12 units at the end of the year. That year to do that plus start, you know, self-manage, I think would have been a lot for us. Plus you were still working half time. I was still working full time. And a lot of our students will go out and buy 20 or 30 or 40 units their first year. Like, I don't think that doing self-management is necessarily like how you want to spend your time if you're going to do that. Now, again, if you have one or two properties and you really want real estate professional tax status, like I agree because you need those hours, right? And some of our students, they'll even go to their properties and they'll do some of the rehab themselves to get hours. You know, they'll go and they'll actually lay tile or they'll paint. I mean, that's very, very common because that real estate professional has such benefits and all the write-offs. And, you know, these are write-offs from depreciation and the rehab, like I mentioned. But, you know, you're also, because you have a real estate business, you have a ton of other write-offs, which are things like, you know, meals or travel or, you know, your cell phone or your internet expenses. Kenji's buying a Tesla. That's a write-off for our business, right? Mm -hmm. So those are the types of... (laughs) Oh, yes. Yeah, I know. I've heard many episodes. I know this whole saga about the Tesla. So... Yeah, it's a hundred percent bonus depreciation. <laughs> Is it? Uh, That's what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yeah, what are you getting? I'm this getting will turn the, completely uh, into a tech show now. Yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> so I'm getting the X. It's the performance with the, the P100 the tires. You know, they got rid of that P100 that type of stuff. It's actually just performance and long distance. Those are your only two options for the X. And so the performance, you actually get less miles per charge, right? But you know, obviously, you get the ludicrous mode. So okay, so the reason the reason he puts it on ludicrous, he oh, can get to each property Lizzie, faster. Which why saves did time. you even say the word Tesla? <laughs> I think you guys are gonna have to come visit. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean it's a six thousand pound car, and because of that, it's hundred percent bonus depreciation if it's hundred percent for your business. And so Kenji can drive it to our local properties. You guys are gonna have local properties. Mm-hmm. We have another car for personal use yeah. and, you know, 100% write-off for the year because we're going to be using it on our property. Yeah. I've created enough marital strife. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Is the podcast episode over yet? <laughs> <laughs> Let me change the subject real because that's awesome. Now, yeah. I got a quick question for y'all though. So what happens, because this is our situation, what happens if you get a property, there's already tenants there. Yeah. But when you're doing the numbers, right? you guys teach in your course as a calculator that makes it super easy for the students to make a decision if they should buy a property or not. Like really granular type of calculations that we you know, normally would not know how to do. That's in your program, which is really dope. But let's say, for example, you are inheriting tenants and you find out that, hey, like, you know, we can increase or we should increase rents according to what everybody else is charging. Other houses are charging right. by maybe like, I don't know, 25 bucks or 100 bucks or what have you. We should be making more. How do you guys handle that? Like, how do you handle if they're month to month? Like, those are kind of weird situations and it could be hairy, but how do y'all handle that? Okay. So (laughs) actually, I think you should almost always be buying properties where there's under market rent. So you're almost always going to want to be in that situation, Mm -hmm. to be honest, because that under market rent represents forced appreciation to you, right? So if you're buying something and it's renting for $500, but you know it should be renting for $700 or $750, and you increase that rent, you get it up to market rent, the $250 a month times 12 months times that 15 to 20 multiplier. That's how you actually make a ton of money. So you should be doing that. Now, is it difficult and a delicate situation when you know, like, you know, that person's been paying $500 and that's their home? Like it is a difficult Mm -hmm. situation. How we've dealt with it is knowing that we're going to change the standard of the home. So, you know, if somebody's on a lease, you honor that lease. 
And then at that point, you say, okay, now it's time to rehab it. They go find a place and you rehab that unit. Now, certainly they could come back and be in that rehabbed unit or you rent it at market rent to somebody else. And so oftentimes we do have turnover because we have tenants who have been there for a long time or who are paying under market rent because the place is totally a slumlord type situation. And so that's unfortunately where the opportunity is. I think the other part of that question is, is that, you know, your first year when you're making improvements and you know, maybe getting new tenants and getting people up to market rent, there is going to be lower cash flow during that time period. Mm-hmm. But you know, we're not necessarily worried too much about the short-term kind of cash flow. Cash flow is extremely important. But again, for us, the major focus is that forced appreciation because we want that 15 to 20x multiplier, right? And that only comes into effect when you're selling the property or when you're doing a cash out refi, when you're you know, getting a refinance and getting it appraised at the new value and pulling money out. Cash out. And then, you know, and then, yeah, cash out of that property. Exactly. Yeah, I think this is always best dealt with an example. So let's take that $3 million property that we just bought. It's a 32 unit. When we bought it, most of the units were renting for 700 to 725, and it was definitely a slumlord situation. And now we've fixed up units and we're renting them for $950 a month plus utility bill back 100. almost 100 a month. Yeah. Okay. So that in itself is going to force 2.2 million mm-hmm. in forced depreciation in the next year. Yeah. Once we rehab all of those units. Wow. And so what we're doing is when people's leases run out or when they decide to leave, then we're going in and rehabbing because with COVID, right. we also can't give people notice even if they're month to month, we have to wait until they're, you know, ready to leave. So, you know, that's what we're doing. Okay, that's what we wanted to know is like yeah. rehab while someone is in there or you wait till afterwards. So that clears it up. Right. Yeah. And what about if you do end up going into a property that is fairly decent, but you still know that the rents are low? Like, are you recommending or have you done incremental increases by how much, you know, what percentage of an increment would you increase the rent? Yeah. So, Always, if you go in and people are month to month, you can actually, you know, say, hey, next month the rent's going to increase to whatever price, and then they can choose to leave or go. If you come in and you buy a property and they have 10 months and they're leased, you need to honor that lease, right? right? And so, what we often do is we'll either say, hey, we got to rehab this unit. So, you know, your lease is ending, you know, you need to move. That's probably a majority of the time. There are times where we've said, hey, the market rent is this, we're going to set it as the market rent you know, do you want to stay or go? And then it, again, it becomes their choice. But I can't say that we often will rent it for under market rent long term. Like mm-hmm. it just doesn't make business sense. And ultimately, mm-hmm. this is a business. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, this is awesome. I love this. And, you know, I think we're probably getting to the close to the end of this. So, well, I did want to ask, you know, I did want to before we got off, you know, this episode, I did want to ask about just kind of the setup. You talked about your anonymity, right? Setting up basically some sort of business to be able to run your properties. And that obviously comes usually under the, you know, the guise of an LLC. What are some ways that you have set up LLCs to be able to preserve your anonymity as landlords? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a lot of ways to, I guess I would think a bit more in terms of asset protection. And then within asset protection, there are things that you can do to be more anonymous. So the way we structured ours is we have a, what's called an umbrella LLC. And this is kind of like a holding company 
that doesn't own any assets, but I guess technically owns other LLCs. And those other LLCs own properties, right? Mm-hmm. And so what that does is just creates another layer of management. So if somebody says, okay, this property is owned by this LLC, who owns this LLC? Which person, right? Then they run into another LLC. Right. And the LLC that is in this umbrella LLC is in the state of Wyoming, which has a lot of protections for owners of LLCs. They really promote kind of anonymity protection. They don't list, for example, you as the owner on their website, although they do list an organizer, but the organizer doesn't have to be the owner. It can be somebody else. So we have actually a company who is the organizer for our LLCs and their name is listed online, not ours. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it just makes it that much more difficult if any time. Mm -hmm. And above our umbrella LLC is actually a trust as well. So we have that level as well. And then, you know, the idea we actually created all of this ourselves when we first started out by reading Garrett Sutton's book, yeah. Start Your Own Corporation. Mm-hmm. And you know he's a rich dad, poor dad advisor. And so he works with Robert Kiyosaki. And so this is kind of a tested, true model that real estate investors have used for a long, long time. So that's why we chose to do it. But the idea besides anonymity is also like if somebody wants to sue one property, they now have to sue in you know the property state. But then now there's the owners in Wyoming. Now you got to potentially have two different lawyers to sue. Mm -hmm. That just creates barrier after barrier after barrier. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. I mean, one of the imperfections of it is we buy fourplexes and below with residential loans. And so our names are on those loan documents. Mm -hmm. You know, if we wanted you know, more anonymity, we would be buying in commercial loans, but the terms aren't as good. So there are holes in the system, but it definitely sets up some roadblocks that'll slow people down. And we've had instances where we've had a property in the news and the fact it was owned by an LLC was awesome for us because our names never came out. So yeah, and that we was love a, that. that was a commercial. If you're buying a commercial property, you can buy the property in the name of the LLC. Right. And that'll make sure that when that deed is recorded with the county, your names are not going to show up. It's going to be the LLC that they put on there. Even the utilities are all under LLC, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. everything is on the LLC. And Kenji has this long signature, you know, as manager of the LLC that owns the LLC. Like, I mean, it's like, Mm. It's intense. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's really important, like you said, because you want to protect your assets, especially for what you do. You know, as physicians, obviously, we are always worried about the targets on our backs. And, you know, when you are setting up an LLC, obviously, that creates some sort of protection. Now, you talked also about potentially a fourplex and under. So, let's say you are buying a duplex with a residential loan, like, what can someone do who's a physician to protect themselves? Because at that point, they won't necessarily be doing it under an LLC, correct? So what you would do is uh, you still use the LLC structure. Well, first of all, you would get insurance, right? That's the mm-hmm. first layer. Mm-hmm. And then the second layer is you still would transfer that property into the LLC. So you'll take it from your name because you purchased it in your name, and then you'll transfer ownership into an LLC, your LLC. Gotcha. And so that you still have that kind of LLC protection. It's just that you lose that anonymity because the deed is recorded in your name. And so if anybody looked it up, you know, at county records, it just pulls right up. Your name just, you know, pulls up. It'll show then that you transferred into an LLC, but your name is still there as the, you can see that kind of progression, right? Yeah. And this points out, again, the importance of working with an investor-friendly bank, a residential lender, because, you know... Transferring ownership to an LLC is something that a lot of banks who don't work with investors are not going to like. They're going to threaten to call the loan. 
or they're just not going to be familiar with it's the rules. It's called the due on sale clause. So mm-hmm. if you sell, if, well, you're technically, I guess, transferring ownership. So that could be considered a sale. sale. So it's called a due on sale clause. So if you sell your property to anybody else, then they could call the entire loan and say, you owe us the full amount of the loan right now, yeah. right? A big balloon payment. But now that risk is a lot lower now because Fannie Mae put out guidance. I think it was like November of 2019 or something like that. Maybe it was September 2019, where it said that if you're transferring into your own LLC, then you know banks can't call that loan. So that due on sale clause is less of an issue now. But some of our students still have issues with yeah. banks saying no. Yeah. And I mean, this is so important because we talked about cash out refi as one way to take out that cash you've made with forcing appreciation. And so when you do a cash out refi, you literally are going to have to take the property out of an LLC. If it's a residential loan and you're doing a residential loan cash out refi, you take it out of the LLC, put it back in your name, do the cash out refi, put it back into the LLC. You can imagine dealing with a residential lender who's just not familiar with that. Right. It's going to cause a lot of issues. And so that's why, you know, an investor friendly like team in general, you know, from your lender to your insurance agent to, you know, your real estate agent, it's always better to have people who work primarily with investors on your team. Right. And I think people, they don't think that really occurs until you actually talk to a loan specialist mm-hmm. or a realtor or what have you. And they're not used to dealing with people who are willing to go into, at this in an investor type of mindset. Right. Mm-hmm. Like when we first interviewed you and you guys mentioned, well, get a real estate agent who really focuses on investors mm-hmm. or get this who really focuses. And then we're like, yeah, do we really? And then you start asking them questions and they're like, yeah, we don't know about that. And you're just like, well, <laughs> how do you yeah. not know? about, you know, X or how do you not know about B? It's very dramatic, you know, and so it's really obvious when they don't work with investors and they're used to, you know, selling to just regular people who want to buy a home. So, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So really important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now this was dope. So for me, what I got out of this is that if we get rep status, we can get a Tesla. Right? <laughs> this, is, this is ultimately the best conclusion. That was that not I the takeaway, me. <laughs> not, I will say that's not. It's a benefit definitely to have local properties if you want to write off a car, right? Because otherwise you're flying to your property. So this is definitely one thing that... Private jet? Yeah, we normally say, oh yeah, well, you, I guess maybe you could write off a jet. You could actually... Oh, guys, stop that. talking. <laughs> but no, normally we say, you know, like invest where it makes sense, right? Live where you want, invest where it makes sense. And so, you know, we often talk about long distance investing, but I guess what Leite is saying is that in this one instance, if you're trying to write off a Tesla, then it may make sense to but, buy local properties. But you shouldn't yeah. let the tax tail wag the dog. Yeah, so. that's what we always say too. So it's like, you know, <laughs> Thanks, but, um, except when it has to do with a Tesla. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but look, overall though, this was really a dope conversation. Yeah. We really, really appreciate all the stuff that you've been putting out there. This course is really going to change a lot of lives for a lot of physicians. I mean, for us already, right. I think yeah. it's definitely something that has changed our lives. As you know, we took another real estate course before we started taking yours and we had not actually taken action. And after taking yours, we really just, you know, just got on it. And now, you know, we're close to closing, you know, on a six unit, which we never thought that we would do. Yeah, we thought we'd do single And we're looking at more. We actually put in a couple of other offers before we even closed on this one. So, I mean, yeah. But I also think for the physicians listening, like, I think the biggest thing for us was the other course was perfect. It was good, actually. But there's something to be said when you see other physicians 
right. taking action, right. being very successful, and then they're showing you the blueprint. And you're like, well, you know, I know what a physician is, or I know mm-hmm. what it takes to get there. And if they could do it, then I can do it. Yeah. So that's the other big thing too that I want the audience to take away yeah. from this is that you know, doing well, being successful in real estate is not just for you know others. Others like yeah. you can do this, and you can be really successful clinically, but also you can be successful. Yeah. From a real estate standpoint, also be a so, doc outside. Doc outside the, the box. box. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, so I think you kind of made a really good point around the belief around you can do this. And when you were saying just right now, you said, you know, if we become reps, then you know, so the if, right? It's like I would actually change that to say when you achieve mm-hmm. reps this year, right? Because you're gonna achieve reps because you're gonna make it a must. And I think that's right. also a big part of what we kind of work on, not just us, we're daily working on ourselves daily, making sure that if there's some goal that we want to achieve we're going to make it a must, right? And there's no, you know, I'm not going to negotiate with it, right? It's just going to happen, right? And so I do want to kind of point out that that's a really also important part of kind of what we do in our daily practice, but also work with, you know, in our students. And so just having that belief is going to really, I think, you know, potential to change a lot of lives. So, yeah. Well, well, listen, thank you very much for your time. We are not too far from finishing up. So we just want to say thank you very much for that. We got like several weeks before we're done and acquired this property. So we're super excited about it. And like I said, I think the cool thing is, is that like you guys weren't, you know, okay with just one thing. Like Mm -hmm. as soon as you got your duplex, I think that was the first property you had where it was a duplex. And then Mm -hmm. just like that, by the end of the year, you had eight more doors to make a total Mm -hmm. of 10 doors or was it 12 doors? 12, yeah. 12 doors, sorry. Kenji owned, yeah, Kenji owned a duplex before we started. So we acquired 10 our first year doors. So this is amazing. So listen, in terms of the course, so the audience can learn about your course when this episode goes out, can you just let us know about your course so that they can sign up or get on the waiting list, whatever is available when this episode goes out? Yeah, sure. So we teach a course where we help physicians go from knowing nothing about real estate all the way through the first purchase. And a lot of our students actually purchase in the middle of the course. It's pretty remarkable. So our course is next offered in December. The waitlist sale is December 12th and 13th. And that's associated with $300 discount. So if you can get on the wait list now, you're going to get actually extra education. You get a heads up on the course and you can get started with some of the work ahead of time. And then you get this, you're able to purchase during a waitlist sale and get the $300 discount. And I know Nee is going to have a link in the show notes as well, where you can click on to get in onto the waitlist. Yeah. I wanted to point out the waitlist doesn't mean like, you know, we're not going to let some people into the course. We're going to let you into the course. It's more just the fact that we have this sales period only twice a year. And we only do our course twice a year. And so at least now, I mean, and, and that may change in the future. But point is that we do the course certain times of the year, because we really want to put our entire effort into it. And during this waitlist period, um, about a month before the course launches, you know, we do a lot of special things for people on the waitlist. So you really want to get on the waitlist, not just for the discount, but also, you know, so you can actually even get started a little earlier, or get a head start on everybody else who's going to be taking the course. Yeah. That's dope. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Letty, Dr. Kenji, thank you so much for your time. Seriously, this was a super great conversation. Yeah. We learned a lot. I think the audience is going to definitely learn a lot. And thank you for inspiring us, yeah. you know, to change our family tree with, yeah. you know, our property. So kudos nice. to y'all <laughs> on that. And we'll catch you on the next one. Awesome. Sounds thank awesome. you, me. Thank you. Thank Renee. you, guys. Thank you. Thank you.